He is a Denver native born of Denver natives. A former Denver chief deputy district attorney. He is now an active Colorado trial lawyer. Bright, independent, and full of fun, he has been part of the media for decades. This is The Craig Silverman Show. What a world, what a life, what a day. Saturday, November 14, 2020. This is a special show, a special name-dropping episode of my podcast. I know some people in the news. I know some people in the movies, like Felix Sparks. Talk about a Colorado hero and legend. He fought in World War II, not just fought. He fought his way from southern Italy all the way up north to liberate Dachau. Over a year of battle, Alex Kershaw has written the definitive book on the subject, The Liberator. I know Alex Kershaw, and soon you will know him as well. And you will know Felix Sparks. Felix Sparks, now the hero of the Netflix series based on Alex's book, The Liberator. It dropped on Veterans Day. Take my advice. Watch that movie. Four episodes, it will capture your attention. My next advice, listen as I talk with Alex Kershaw. Then, my goodness, what's going on in the world? Donald Trump deranged, won't give in. We have politicians galore. Vic Mitchell was a Republican state legislator. He ran for governor in 2018 despite the fact that he would not back Donald Trump and he's a Republican, came in second. He's a solid voice on the subject of what happens next. Then Craig's Lawyers Lounge welcomes a multi-term state legislator. He got term limited out, Joe Salazar. Then he ran for AG, came up short. Now he's a working lawyer like me, but he keeps his hand in Democrat politics. What a fascinating interview I have with Joe Salazar. My goodness, my troubadour Dave Gunders has the perfect song for this time when Donald Trump refuses to abandon the White House and so many people are losing their livelihoods. This pandemic is terrible. Dave Gunders' song, This American Dream, will capture your heart. It did mine. This is our 20th episode. We've heard 20 songs. I love them all but none more than this American dream. Listen to it and you will find out why. But first, hear about my former colleague working to lobby the Colorado State Legislature, the one and only legend, Felix Sparks, brought to life by Alex Kershaw. Enjoy. What a thrill to welcome back to my show, Alex Kershaw. So much has happened since last we broadcast together. Alex, congratulations on all your success with the hit movie, The Liberator on Netflix. How's it going, man? It's good. It's great. It's great to be with you. Tell everybody the Alex Kershaw story. Where are you from, mate? I'm a limey. I've, I've been married to, I stole one of your finest, one of your most beautiful American ladies, and I met her in London a oh, long, long time ago, and I've been in uh, the U.S. 26 years now, I think. So my accent's still pretty British, though, isn't it? It's I'm, I'm still a limey. Yes, I can hear it. 
Although now I understand you're living in Savannah, Georgia. You got out of Vermont where you lived yeah. the writer's life. Yeah. You not only took American women, you took American jobs, right? You worked at a place called the New York <laughs> Times. Tell everybody about how you came to be a writer at the New York Times. I was a journalist in London before I came over here and started writing about World War II about 25 years ago. And I've written several books about basically, you know, working class Americans liberating Europe. I, I specialize in small units of men fighting in, in, the, in Europe during World War II and books like The Longest Winter about the most decorated U.S. platoon. They, they were in the Battle of the Bulge and the Bedford Boys, which is a story of a bunch of guys from Bedford, Virginia. Had they, That town had the highest per capita loss of any allied community on D-Day. And then The Liberator, which has just been released on Netflix. Literally, they uh, they dropped it on the 11th of November. So we're two days in and it's actually, I can't quite believe it, but it's actually number four of all shows being watched on Netflix around the world. So I'd say they have a subscriber base of almost 200 million, I think. And for it to be now number four around the world is amazing because what it's, what that's doing is it's bringing an, an amazing Colorado hero, I mean, a superstar, if you ask me, to a new generation and a global audience. So hopefully, fingers crossed, uh, Felix Sparks, who you knew really well and you worked with very closely, he's going to be a legend for a long time now, and rightly so. So I, I get kind of emotional about it all because I, I, I met him just for a couple of days. I know that you knew him really really well, Craig, but to think that he is now is not going to be forgotten, that so many people are going to revere him and respect him and admire him and, and, and know about what he really did. It's just, it's just fantastic. It's a, it's, it's a historian's dream. You know, I, 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 I never imagined when I first came to Colorado to, to interview him, I was pestered to death by Jack Hallowell. I think you may have come across Jack Hallowell, who, you know, he was a good friend of Sparks, and this guy just kept pestering me for a couple of years. You've got to come out. You've got to write about this guy. He's amazing. And then I came out finally in 2000 and 2007, just a couple of months before he died, and I can tell you right now I'm so glad I did. It's a great feeling. I think that uh, hopefully it's not just a lot of kids and a lot of new, a new, a new generation. There have been a lot of kids watching this right now with their parents or their grandparents. A lot of kids watching this are really into it because it's animated. So it reminds them of a kind of video game, and they're really into animation anyway. A lot of them, and you know, they they, they were born after Saving Private Ryan was made. They were born after Band of Brothers. I mean, they, they, they that seems to be that seems to them to be of a different age, a different era. They want something new. They want something that looks new, that that you know that, that speaks to them, and you know is it shows a diverse picture of America that isn't just a white victory. That shows a Native American and a Mexican American and a working class white boy, Sparks. They love the fact that these three these three guys are are central to the story, and and, and they're winning they're, they're winning the war and they're, they're defeating Nazism. So it's, it's it's great, you know, it's fantastic. You are giving me chills because I did know Felix Sparks. I knew him because we worked on a cause together, which is the final chapter of your tremendous book, The Liberator. I watched this amazing, it's not just animation because people will think it's a cartoon. 
It's enhanced hybrid animation. You have great actors, fantastic writing, but of course it's written well because it's based on your book and you are one of the producers of this incredible movie about a Colorado hero. I've watched the first two episodes. I am savoring it. And you're telling me episode three is really going to be something else. It's such an escape for me as an American to feel great about an American hero and to think that I knew Felix Sparks and I admired him so much. It's just tremendous. I bet we both met with him at his Lakewood, Colorado home. He had a beautiful sunroom. I remember his wife, Mary, being so kind and nice as General Sparks and I plotted strategy against the National Rifle Association. It's just amazing. <laughs> Let me just speak to, to how I knew him a little bit. The summer of violence in Colorado, all around the country, there was a surge in violent crime. It led to Joe Biden's anti-crime bill. And we found that a lot of juveniles were killing other juveniles with handguns. Felix Sparks, World War II hero, renowned for his use of his own handgun. He had his grandchild murdered, sadly. And he was aware of an organization that I had founded for people who were against children having handguns. We called it Punch. I named it Punch. People United, no children's handguns. And we brought together families that had been affected by juveniles shooting other juveniles to death. I got a call from Felix Sparks saying he heard of my organization. He wanted to get involved. Could he be heavily involved? I said, yes, sir. And then he and the rest of Punch went to the special session in 1993, a legislative session called by Roy Romer to address the violent crime problem. And Felix Sparks testified, and we got that bill passed, prohibiting minor children from possessing firearms. Before then, an uncle could give a five-year-old a Colt 45 for his birthday, and it was okay. But it wasn't after Felix Sparks got involved with Punch. Thanks for indulging my story of how I got to know Felix Sparks. But tell us about your encounters with him late in his life what those visits were like, and what you got from coming to Colorado to talk with him. Well, he was on his deathbed, and he was in a lot of pain. I uh, met him over two days, and I, I probably got to interview him for maybe an hour and a half the first day, and maybe an hour the next day. It was kind of difficult because I wanted to cover so much ground, but I had to kind of really focus my questions on the most important events of the war. So obviously I asked him about what happened at Dachau. He was the commanding officer of the first American troops to enter the longest standing concentration camp in Nazi Germany. I obviously asked him about Anzio, where he lost an entire infantry company, but stopped the Germans from defeating the Allies in that very, very bitter and bloody battle in February of 1944. And asked him about you know the key influences when he was growing up. Asked him about what he thought about the Holocaust denial, which he absolutely despised from the core of his soul. I asked him about, you know, what he thought about discrimination. And he said that when he'd grown up in, in uh, Arizona, in a small town of Miami, Arizona, he'd gone to school with a lot of Mexican-Americans. And he said that the discrimination was terrible. I have to say that he's the greatest working class hero I've ever met. I'm very biased. Uh, 
I loved his politics. I loved his courage, his integrity, his compassion. I loved his his guts. I loved his spine, his iron. His his. Uh, I love the fact that he stood up and spoke truth to power all the way through his life. He was a guy that didn't care about power and authority. He, if something was right, it was right, and if it was wrong, it was wrong. And he spoke out. Even when he was in World War II, he, he was very, very, very strong and and, uh, and very determined to make sure that his men weren't mistreated, that their lives weren't wasted. He was a, he was a very strong guy. And I, when I first met him, I, it scared the hell out of me. I knew that I was in a room with and a massive spirit, a great soul. And I was, uh, to be honest, when I when I left him on the second day, I left him because he was in a lot of pain. He was dying, and I didn't want to be, a, you know, I didn't want to be a pain in the ass, so to speak, and cause him any more distraction and pain, and pain. But when I left the house where he spent time, Craig, I, I was very nervous and very overwhelmed by the magnitude of his personality and the story. Because I researched a lot about him. To actually meet someone, I knew what he'd, what he'd gone through on paper, but to actually be in the room next to him and to feel that, to feel that force of his personality, that righteousness, it was amazing. It was like probably one of the most special experiences in my life as a writer. I've never met a World War II veteran that was as powerful as that guy. He was, he was just a, just an extraordinary human being. Right, but the power of your writing brought Felix Parks to life. And I can't thank you enough because I learned so much about his origins in Miami, Arizona. You'd say he was working class, but my God, that family was poor. Yeah. Was terrible times yeah. in America. And when he was a teenager, they had to sew, what, 10 or 15 bucks into his shoe and put him on a yeah. hobo yeah. train and said, good luck, son, because we can't, we can't yep. feed you anymore around here. Yeah, and then, you know, the thing about it is, is that, you know, you think about that, you think about all the kids that didn't get to to make it, the kids that didn't graduate high school, the kids that didn't, weren't smart, the kids that, that didn't get a job, the kids that didn't go go through World War II and miraculously survive, miraculously survive and then get the GI Bill and go to college. I mean, he was born with nothing. He, he, he was a really good shot. He was nicknamed Shotgun Sparks, and they you know, used a shotgun in World War II. But he was a great shot because he had to hunt to feed his family when he was a kid. There, a lot of a lot of Americans did during the Depression. They uh, same thing with Audie Murphy. You know, he he was a great shot because he he knew how to hunt down prey. And so yeah, I I, um, I admire him enormously. And I think one of the reasons why I loved his character and I loved him so much is that you know I kind of I kind of worship men like that who come from nothing and then don't sell out. They keep their integrity, and they always do their lives, even when they become successful. They never forget who they've left behind, where they came from. They never forget who they are in their core, and they look after people, and they, they care about people, and they keep their compassion, and they keep their humanity, and they don't just go, I'm all right, Jack. Lift up the drawbridge. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a well-off guy now. Who cares? You know, those people that didn't make it, they're all losers. There's something wrong with them. They didn't try hard enough. Sparks was never like that. He's a He's a he's, he's a giant of a man, a giant American. And I just loved his grit and his politics and his humanity. You know, it, it was, he, had, he had the whole lot. He was very, very special guy. I loved your movie, The Liberator. And one thing I loved about it is, I know that the hero is going to survive because I met with him several times at his home in Lakewood, and he lived a good long life. And after he got out of World War II. 
he went on the GI Bill to finish up college and then go to law school. And then he got elected a district attorney in Western Colorado. Then he was appointed to the Colorado Supreme Court. He was a military commander of reserve forces here in Colorado. What a legend. But like most World War II heroes, he really didn't brag on himself. He was part of that greatest generation. But a guy named Patton bragged about the Thunderbirds. The Thunderbirds was such a cool unit, and they utilized Hispanics and Native Americans who had some special skills. I urge people to watch this. What acting, what writing? Are you pleased with the finished product, Alex? I've posted on Twitter so many times. It's like a dream come true. I, you know, I didn't, I couldn't have imagined that they would do such something, something so vibrant, so beautiful, so powerful. I cried all the way through most of it, most of it. And uh, I've got to say, you know, um, Triascope Studios, big shout out for them. They took some big risks, and boy, did it pay off. And Jeff Stewart, who created it and wrote the shows um he, you know this is a guy that wrote die hard and the fugitive and he just he just nailed it he, and he nailed it in in the ways that i really appreciate he was true to the story as much as he could be but he also gave a humor and flair and a great commercial feel and you know he's, he's aiming to entertain and reach a large audience and also tell a great story that's truthful at the same time and that's not an easy thing to do and I, boy, he pulled it off. So I, all the actors, everybody involved, I, I just can't say thank you enough because, you know, it's it, it's a it's a wonderful thing to watch. It's it's great. What a great choice to have Mike Rowe as your narrator. That really draws people in. Did you get to meet him, and what was that like? No, I didn't. I I you know I I didn't even see it until it it it, it showed on uh, you know a couple of days ago. I didn't. I, I saw a trailer. I um, made a very clear decision very early on in the process, which was that I didn't want to get in the way or look over the shoulder of people that were really at the core of the production. I wanted them to have complete liberty, complete freedom to do what they wanted to do and to fulfill their vision. I've already written my book. I wanted all these great artists to to run with it and and not to get in the way and not to influence that because it wouldn't have helped. They probably wouldn't listen to me anyway. And, you know, I think I'm very happy right now that I was right because my hunch was just to just to let them create some, whatever they wanted that was beautiful. And they did a fantastic job. And it was lovely to see that they really kept to the essence of the uh, story and, and, and didn't take didn't take liberties, really. I mean, the, the core story is there. There's Sparks. Sparks is the guy you see on the screen. And uh, it, it's wonderful, wonderful. And what a leader for our times. His leadership ability was unbelievable. And his commitment to truth and justice and being selfless. Isn't that what America needs to see right now? And I'm so thrilled that this is number four on Netflix around the world. It represents an authentic American hero. This is not fiction. Yeah. This is the Felix Sparks story. I'm getting goosebumps just thinking about it. It's it's perfect for right now, isn't it, Alex Kershaw? Yeah, I think. Well, I, you know, I think it shows America at its best. I mean, it's not a finer, finer moment in American history. If, if you know, if, from the point of view of showing people Amer- what Americans can do, what they have done, the best of America. This show is all about that, and to and to think that in you know twenty countries right now, you know, millions of people are watching it, young people, and looking at America at its finest, uh, Americans at their finest, 
you know, not just white Americans, but Native Americans, Native American Americans and Mexican Americans, you know, people that can speak Spanish better than they can speak English. And to for people to see that, to see that it wasn't just a white a white American victory in World War Two, that so many Americans, a very diverse unit of Americans, a unified America in that infantry company that Sparks led, a truly integrated, uh, unified America in that unit, that they accomplished so much. I think it's a wonderful thing, and it's a great timely reminder that you know we we all need to come together. We need to be united and. We've done it in the past. We did it in the worst of times, and we we performed miracles, and, and we can do it again. Um, we have to look beyond color, look beyond politics, and we have to unite and fight for things that matter. And they did it in World War II, and we can do it again. Yeah, we're in quite a battle now. Did the pandemic affect the making of The Liberator, or was the timing just right? It was just right. They, they finished the production, I think, late in 2019, so... I think there's been some post-production, but it was, the timing was right. So, um, you know, thankfully, you know, because of the pandemic, which has been so awful, at least people are watching Netflix and watching TV. And so, you know, we're, we're getting a, big, a bigger audience than maybe we would have had before. And I think it's a good story for people right now. It's, a, it's an inspiring story. It makes people realize that people went through a hell of a lot worse and they came out the other side. And uh, you know, it's, a, it's, it's inspiring. Absolutely. And not only will Felix Sparks experience fame after death, but the Thunderbirds. Tell everybody who the Thunderbirds were and how magical that group of soldiers were. Well, they, you know, they were drawn from four states, so Oklahoma, New Mexico, Colorado, and Arizona. And the core of the 45th was the Oklahoma National Guard. And when they left for Europe, there were over 1,500 Native Americans in that division. So that's the largest number of Native Americans in any U.S. infantry division in World War II. It's just a huge number from, I think, over 40 tribes. And then there were an awful lot of Mexican Americans that came from, you know, it's the Southwest. So they, there would have been a lot of cowboys, a lot of kids that grew up dirt poor in, in the Depression. And, you know, they, they at Fort Sill, where they, the 45th trained before it went over to Europe, there were bars outside the, the base that said no Indians and no Mexicans. So, you know, this is a very, uh, you know, America in the 1930s was a, a very racist place indeed. And, um, you know, Mexicans were treated like second-class citizens. And let alone, you can imagine what, how they treated Native Americans. Who'd, Native Americans who'd suffered this massive genocide had always been wiped out by white America, you know, in, in living memory. And yet they all came together in the 45th Infantry Division. And believe it or not, which is something that's very, very ironic, is that the, the 45th patch on the shoulder in the 1920s and early 1930s as was a swastika. So someone basically decided that that might not be a very good idea to have a swastika on your shoulder going to fight Hitler or you know, going into what, what looked like being a war in the, the late 30s. So they changed the patch on the shoulder to the Thunderbird and what I loved about that is that it, is that it meant a lot to the, the Native Americans because the Thunderbird is a very important symbol in Native American culture in many cultures around the world. But particularly for Native Americans fighting in that unit, that was like a, that was a very special emblem on their shoulder. It was very symbolic to them, very powerful symbol. And to them, the Thunderbird, it was a harbinger of freedom and peace and justice and vengeance 
for those who'd been wronged, for the oppressed. And it was a, a harbinger of death for people who carried out evil. So what better patch to have on your shoulder? What better patch to be to have as a liberator of Nazi-controlled, Nazi-occupied Europe in World War II than, than that patch? So um, beautiful, you know, beautiful stuff. I mean, uh, you know, as a storyteller, to have Native American, you know, liberating Dachau or, you know, fighting with a Thunderbird patch on his shoulder, you know, winning the Medal of Honor, you know, I think three guys from the 45th were Native Americans and they, they received the Medal of Honor. One of them, Childers, was the first American, first Native American American to get it in, the, in World War II. So, yeah, it was a very diverse, very interesting, fascinating unit from that beautiful part of the American West. Have you thought about the fact that it was the 45th that liberated Dachau and that number 45 is in a lot of our minds as the 45th president of the United States hopefully departs? I could not help <laughs> but make the contrast on Veterans Day watching the heroism of Felix Sparks, who had a chance to get out of the war after he got nearly shot to death, but he decided to go back to his unit and fight the selflessness of Felix Sparks compared with the other 45 occupying the White House. I just found it fascinating to think about it on Veterans Day as your amazing movie dropped. You don't need to comment on that, but you can if you want. I won't get political, but I would assume that Felix Sparks probably, if he was alive today, wouldn't be a big fan. Let me say that. <laughs> and I don't think he'd be a fan of the Proud Boys or the Gripers or the people who gathered oh, no, in Charlottesville. Wouldn't would Felix Sparks as a young man be right there confronting them? <laughs> oh my God. He said he said several times after the war, you know, he, he was very angry about Holocaust denial. And he said, you know, if you want to keep keep repeating that absolute BS why don't you come over here to come and say it and stand in front of my face and say that, you know, let's see what kind of man you are. Cause I was there. I saw it. So why don't you come over, stand right in front of me and say it again? Cause <laughs> and needless to say, no one did. <laughs> I'm disappointed in one aspect of your Netflix series, the liberator, only four episodes. I mean, your book held my interest. I don't know how many yeah. pages, but it was several hundred. And last night I watched Anzio. Oh, my God, the heroism and Anzio of Felix Sparks and his crew. I'm not going to ruin it for others, but does it end part four with the liberation of Dachau? Uh, it, it's faithful to my book. It goes all the way to it, it goes all the way all the way to the end of the war. You'll, you'll love it, Craig, because it's a, you know you you knew Mary um, Sparks. Yes. Um, you met her, and you know all the way through the four hours he writes to Mary. It's a really nice narrative device that Jeb Stewart used, and I won't spoil it. But at the end, there's a really beautiful emotional payoff. Um, so I think you'll find it really special. Well, Sparks and the Thunderbird marched all the way from the southern part of Italy up to Dachau. They were in combat for, what, over a year in a row? And then I'm fascinated, after I read The Liberator, to read another great book, I Hear You Paint Houses, which became a Netflix movie called The Irishman about Frank Sheeran. And wasn't yeah. he part of that 
crew too. Martin yeah, he was in the. Through. Yeah, he was in the. He was in the forty fifth Infantry Division. Yeah, we don't exactly know what he did. I think a lot of it's been made up. I think he. I think he himself obviously exaggerated a lot of it. But yeah, he was. He had a Thunderbird patch on his shoulder. Not not one of the the better Thunderbirds, but <laughs> he definitely had the patch on his shoulder. Do you think Felix Sparks and Frank Sheeran encountered each other? Uh, I don't know. I don't know what year he was in. I, I, it's doubtful, but yeah, it could have happened. I mean, you know, um, it's possible. I think Sheeran was at Anzio. I don't know. It's possible. Yes, he was at Anzio, and he was a bad guy who would... Well, he learned how to kill there. I'm not going to say he was a bad guy, because he's a product of his upbringing in Philly, but yeah. I just thought, wow, what a small world, what a small war. And speaking of a small world, for me to get to know Alex Kershaw and Felix Sparks through a happenstance, you have a friend in Denver named Christian Bear, and I encountered him on a famous trial I did. Yeah. And then he introduced me to you, and we hit it off. And next thing you know, we're going to a Neil Diamond show together at the Pepsi Center. I know. I keep telling people, it's like, my wife can't stand Neil Diamond yet. And I love Neil Diamond, as you know, and I have to thank you yet again for that beautiful invite. It was awesome. But I grew up with my parents playing Neil Diamond, so it's kind of pure nostalgia for me. But he was awesome, so thank you very much for that. What's wrong with your wife not liking Neil Diamond? She's really upset with you, Craig, because every now and again she hears me playing it in my office or in the car and everything. And she's just got, I think she overdosed on it when she was a kid. And, She's just like, why did you go to that concert? Why did he get you interested? Why did he get you listening to Neil Diamond again? <laughs> oh, well, it was it was a great night being with you, and, and we were singing, and I love Neil Diamond, and I'm yeah. thinking about your movie, and here's a sort of obscure song for you to play for your wife. Maybe it will get her to turn around. Have you ever heard his song, Hell Yeah? No, I haven't, no. Oh, it's, it's an anthem of his life, and... He talks about it was all worth it. Hell yeah, it was. I'm going to send that to you. And it's a heck of a song. But your book was fantastic, Alex. Thanks for all your success and sharing it with us. And to bring up that he's a Colorado hero. We refer to him as a Colorado hero because he ended up living here. He was from Arizona in the first place. Is that going to come out in the Netflix series? Is there going to be a reference to Colorado? Because so far... None, even though he's a Colorado hero. Yeah, no, yeah, you get it. You get it right at the end. You got to wait to the end, Craig. You get it right at the end. You'll just see it. It gets better and better. You know, if you're not if you're not into this four hours, and to me, the most beautiful was hour three, and the most emotional was hour four. So yeah, you got you got. It just gets better and better, man. It's gonna it's gonna knock you flat. You'll be blubbing at the end of it. I bet. I bet you will. Well, let me ask you this. Did you binge watch your own movie and did you go through a whole Kleenex box? My wife said this to me and she decided not to do a Facebook feed of me live because I was crying too much. I literally, I could, I was speechless and couldn't talk for several periods because what I kept seeing were emotional triggers. What I, what I, what I was seeing it was so many emotional triggers and moments that I had really affected me when I was writing the book. You know, there's there's a couple of moments where I'm like, wow, that's that's incredible. And I, I agonized over those moments. I was like, am I, am I picking the right material here? Am I telling the story in the right way? And then to see it 
actually work on the screen and to see the writer, your own decisions amplified and confirmed. It was, it was lovely. It was beautiful. You know, it, it, I just remember all the guys that, you know, the thing that made me really choked me up most was the fact that Jack Hallowell, he ran the regimental association and was a good friend of Sparks. And he was the one that I first contacted when I was interested in the regiment and the Thunderbird story. I phoned him in, in Denver and got chatting to him and he said, yeah, you should, you, you know, we, this is a great story and, you know, you should come out and see Sparks. And I, and I didn't go out there for a couple of years. I was like, I, I couldn't work out how to tell the story. Issues with my publisher, you know, I was like, I, you know, can I sell this? It's like, can I get a publisher to, to, to punt on this? And Jack just kept on me. He, He's the guy that this all boils down to. Jack Hallowell. Let's shout out his name very loud. Another Colorado hero. Right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. He went from the beginning to the end, man. He went from Sicily all the way to Dachau. He actually drove Lee Miller, the famous photographer around Dachau. So when you look at the most famous shots of the liberation, they're by Lee Miller, the Vogue photographer. And uh, Jack was driving her around. And I, I was so funny because it's a great story. Because I, I said to Jack one day when I met him again, and I said, Hey, Jack, have you seen these photographs? Because I, I went to an interview with him. And he said there was this babe in the back of the jeep. There's a beautiful woman in the back of the jeep. It was a highlight of his war, you know? <laughs> he said, I haven't seen it. A really good-looking dame for an awful long time. And then right there at Dachau, this horrible, nightmarish place, I get this job. i gotta, I got to drive this couple of correspondents around. And I kept looking over my shoulder because she was so gorgeous. And it was Lee Miller who was really beautiful. I mean, she's a, a muse for Picasso and other people, you know? She took some amazing photographs. So imagine this. I sit down with Jack and I say, Jack, have you seen these images before? And he went quiet. He was like frozen. Because obviously he'd seen these images before because he'd driven her around while she was taking photographs. So he, he saw everything that he, he was seeing, literally. For the first time since the war, he was seeing what he'd seen, you know, through the lens of a, a fantastic photographer. And he was just saying, that was, well, was one of the most amazing moments of the whole thing, of the whole liberator process for me was seeing Jack Hallowell look at the past and as if it was right there. And he was right back there. He was like, wow. I mean, you could tell that he was just right back next to those, you know, block, block towers and by that wire with all those dead bodies. And it just, it was, it was amazing. But he, you remember how, how cute she was. And that was, that was funny. You know, it was just great. That is amazing. And they fought their way all the way to Dachau. And boy, the actions of Felix Parks to Dachau. I know what's coming. I'm savoring the movie. And as for the fierceness of the fighting ability of Felix Parks and the Thunderbirds, no less a warfighter than Patton. He talked about Felix Parks and the Thunderbirds. Tell us what Patton thought of those guys. They had a very, very, very high opinion of them. You know, he said they were, they were some of the best American warriors of World War II, and they were. I mean, everybody that knows anything about World War II would agree that they, if they know about what happened in Italy and Sicily and Anzio, and, you know, they, they, they'd all agree. They were a fantastic outfit. They lost a hell of a lot of guys. They, you know, only one division in Europe spent longer in combat. That was the third. And they did a really fantastic job. And, you know, sadly, they've mostly been forgotten by everybody except military historians, really. The reason for that is that, you know, they fought from left North Africa, Sicily, you know, they had, they had three amphibious invasions by the time they got to Rome. 
They liberated Rome on the 4th of June, 1944. And when, hey, two days later, you have D-Day, June the 6th in Normandy. And uh, everyone forgot about Italy. Everyone forgot about Sicily. And in fact, you know, they were disparaged by some people as D-Day dodgers. They, you know, they were uh, sitting there in the sun eating lemons in Italy while the real fighting was happening in Normandy. And it couldn't have been, it couldn't have been less true. And, you know, by the time you get to D-Day on June the 6th, Felix Barks had been in fact, amphibious invasions, you know? So it, it done it three times before they even got in a, a landing craft. Um, so, yeah, they were forgotten. And, uh, you know, they, they beca- it became the forgotten front, it became the forgotten forgotten troops of World War II because, they, you know, suddenly it was all about the 1st Division and the 29th and the Band of Brothers, 101st and everyone. They, they, they stole all the glory, really. It's a shame because the uh, 45th, for a hell of a lot harder and a hell of a lot longer than, than the 101st. Not to disparage the 101st, they were amazing, but I think they only spent, no, I'd say only, but they spent 117 days on the line in combat in World War II, and the 45th spent 511, so that's four times longer, and lost a lot more men because of it. Alex, you are one good limey. Is it okay if I call you a limey? Yeah, I'm proud to be a limey, mate. I'm very proud. I'm very proud to... to to spend, I'm kind of half half in a way, you know. I was 28 when I left. I'm 53 now. Actually, no, Jesus, I'm lying. I'm 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 54. My God, I feel old. And uh, I left England when I was 28. So I spent kind of half my life here, half my life back in in Europe. And I I love Europe. I consider myself to be a European. I grew up in uh, very up, since 1945. Europe's been at peace and had prosperity mostly, and, and certainly democracy and freedom. And uh, so I, I count myself as extremely lucky that I have spent all my life in a world where I didn't have to go to war, and I grew up in a Europe that was at peace and unified and free. And the guys that put their lives in the line, the ones that, 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 that allowed me to enjoy all that, and that allowed so many Europeans to be able to vote. And they were the Thunderbirds, and many others liked them, but you know, I can't think of a guy that survived that liberation, that ordeal, that nightmare, that was more of a hero than, than Felix Sparks, and that's why, that's why I love him to death. Well, here's to Felix Sparks. And my wife, Trish, says, tell Alex hello. We will never forget that Neil Diamond concert together. <laughs> Not that often we've danced like that in the Pepsi Center. But someday, <laughs> when this pandemic is over, we want to go on one of your tours of the battlefields of Europe, and let's make that happen. Tell everybody about that business. I'm sure it's been wrecked for a while by the pandemic, but where can people find you online, and how can they contemplate a tour with Alex Kershaw of incredible World War II battle sites? You can go to my website, alexkershaw.com. We've got some stuff planned, but I think 2022 is the time when we'll probably start up properly again. You know, I, I had to cancel a whole bunch of stuff. I had loads of stuff sorted out for this year, but I think 2022, people will feel, hopefully feel really comfortable about traveling again. And I'm going to organize some stuff so that we can actually go to Dachau and maybe do a, a special operator tour so people can go all the way from, you know, go through Italy and then France and then right to the end to Dachau and Munich. So we'll see what we can do. It might be fun. But I'll let you know. Everybody should check out alexkershaw.com. Do yourself a favor. If you have Netflix, watch The Liberator. 
you will not be disappointed. Alex, great to connect with you again. Good luck down in Georgia. And if we go on that trip, I want your wife to be there. And we're going to blast Neil Diamond singing <laughs> Hell Yeah It Was. Hey, man, thanks a lot, Neil. Uh, and thanks for everything you did with Sparks. You're a good man. Thanks a lot. Thank you, Alex Kershaw. What a privilege. Thanks, Alex. Bye. Cheers, mate. Cheers. My dearest Mary, when I left you to come over here, I was scared of losing you. Scared of not coming back. Scared of dying. Let's go! But I began this war with a group of men. Hang in there, Captain. Men who I owed a debt to. Go! Go! Captain, you're not ready for discharge. You walk out of here, you'll be AWOL. They would send me home, sir. I ought to be with my men. Mary, I don't expect you to understand. It isn't my time to come home yet. He lost me, it's the captain. He came back. I'm not scared anymore. Those men, they're the descendants of the powerful Mexican army. Let's go! That defeated the French on Cinco de Mayo. Vamos! Vamos! They're sons of Texas Rangers and brought the rule of law. They're the grandsons of the greatest Indian warriors to roam the American plains. They're my men. Your predicament is not good, Captain. Perhaps I can offer you a solution. If you're surrendering, Major, I accept. Hmm. Get ready! They're coming! These men, before the war, I probably would never have known. But because of it, I considered them closer than family. I'm oh, sorry, Cap. Yeah. I'm not gonna make it. My darling Mary, for the rest of my life, if ever I go silent or seem to leave you even when you're right beside me, you'll know where I am. Sir, I think it's probably a good idea for you to fall back till we clear the snipers out. You went able to come back to this? I think you're just worried he's gonna miss me and hit one of you. Gosh, it's hot in here. Did that toaster catch on fire? It wasn't that. You choked on that bite of burnt bagel. Why is everything all red? The heat is unbearable. Where am I? Excuse me, your dishonor. May I step in on behalf of my client? Mr. Silverman, proceed. Tell me one redeeming good thing your client did. He was a faithful listener to my radio show. Not good enough. He had decency and compassion for his family. He did end-of-life planning with Michael Bailey. The Michael Bailey? That is kind to your loved ones. That is smart and way too decent for this place. Your client can go. And what about me, your despicableness? Why should I? Michael Bailey is my lawyer, too. Go on, then. Get out of here. <laughs> now, part of that was serious, and part of that was fictional. But you will die someday, and if you don't make a legal plan, the government will make one for you. Call my lawyer, Michael Bailey. His rates are reasonable, and he can meet with you and your spouse wherever you want, and on weekends and evenings. 720-394-6887 or online at MBLaw LLC.com. Sandler Training is one of the leading sales training and leadership development companies in all the world. 
If you're interested in increasing your win rates and revenue margins, increasing the number of salespeople exceeding quota, addressing sales manager professional development, reducing your turnover of sales personnel, it's all waiting for you at Sandler Training. Call my pal Dan Levitt at 303-829-2107 and tell him Craig sent you. Hey, Danny, what happens if somebody calls and says, hey, Craig sent me? Well, Craig, for the first few minutes, we'll probably tell some jokes about you. What? Yeah. And then I'll dig into, you know, what, what's going on in their world and whether or not I'm a fit for what, you know, might, might be able to help them or not. He's an easy guy to talk to. I've been talking to him for so many decades. Call my old friend, Dan Levitt, 303-829-2107. 303-829-2107. Tell him Craig sent you. Hey there, I'm not going to take a lot of your time. I've been a lawyer almost 40 years. My brother was a lawyer, my father a Denver lawyer, my grandfather a Denver lawyer. If you have a legal problem, call me, 303-861-2800, 303-861-2800. If I'm not the right lawyer for you, I bet I know somebody who is. 303-861-2800. Thank you. Now back to the Fred Silverman Show. Dave Kunders, my troubadour, you have outdone yourself. Hi, Craig. Hi, Dave. I can't wait to go walking with our dogs later today, but right now I need to get your input. This is our 20th show. Do you realize that, troubadour? 20 great songs from Dave Kunders. And today it's a special name-dropping episode of my podcast. You know why? Because I'm going to drop some famous names like Felix Sparks, who I knew, the late, great Colorado general. Alex Kershaw, the historian who wrote about him. He and I went to a Neil Diamond concert. I think maybe because the Gunders couldn't go. I took Alex Kershaw and a buddy. And then... I'm talking about Geraldo Rivera. Did you hear Geraldo is the guy who's talked Donald Trump down? And now Donald Trump is acknowledging to my old buddy Geraldo that it may be time to go, but he wants to exhaust every possible legal remedy. What do you think about all that name dropping, Dave Gunders? I think it's impressive. I always look forward to hearing the show, Craig. And that's that's aside the, the fact that I'm the troubadour. You have the perfect song this week for pandemic times, for Donald Trump leaving the White House. In fact, the opening line is, take this house, we're done with it. (laughs) It is. And as usual, you make it work for for your subject matter. It's not about Trump leaving the house, although I'll take that. Why not? And what about the pandemic? So much uncertainty. Times are testing everyone. That that's more that speaks more to the song. It, it's about a family that's fallen on hard financial times and loses their house. But it's also like I, I love to do. It's also a love song to his wife and to to the their uh, their recovery. Well, we know that eliminates the Trumps. I'm not sure there's that much love between Donald and Melania. But the other reason it doesn't apply is because the chorus so beautifully written and sung by you and some beautiful female. You have the refrain, we don't owe nobody nothing. And right. that doesn't apply to the Trumps. He's deep in debt. 
<laughs> no, no, that does not nearly apply to him. But uh, it certainly is is a, a good thing to have in someone's life to to be debt free or close to it. Who is the beautiful background singer? Is it Rachel? Is it Sarah? Usually, it's one of your daughters, but this is another amazing voice. Who is it? No, this is a this this woman is named her name is Liz Ager, and she's a she's a professional sh- singer. Um, I I just got a hold of her through a friend and called her. She was interested, and actually, she's done a number of songs with me. She's she's really she's really a wonderful singer. This is one of the most spectacular songs, and we are celebrating the fact that Donald Trump will be leaving the White House. How about that election, Troubadour? I'm thrilled. Thankfully, you know, the results were what they were. Um, I'm, it's, it's tempered in my mind by, by Trump's unwillingness to concede. It, it's, it's infuriating. And I think he steps on the traditions and the mechanisms of our democracy by doing that. But he's, gonna, he's gone, and that's a good thing. And I bet when he leaves, probably before the holidays, before Christmas, he'll go down to Mar-a-Lago, and if there was a sound cloud above him, and might say, take this house, we're done with it. Thank <laughs> you for this American dream. Dave Gunders, listen to this beautiful song. Thank you. Thanks, Greg. Take this house, we're done with it Won't be no love lost, friend Cause it ain't a life when you're under it Gonna give it up, start again Maybe some good will come of it There's that little town by the bay On some rented porch We'll light our torch Laugh every time we say Don't know nobody nothing This American dream About a castle and a king Well there's more to the dream Than that It's more about the chance To dance your own dance Take another turn at bat But there's So much uncertainty Times are testing everyone Doing with less for the best No more sweating under the gun Don't owe nobody nothing Selling our soul Climbing out Of this disaster Like climbing up Out of a hole Don't know nobody Nothing 
Dan Levitt, Sandler Training. Hi, Dan. Craig sent me. Craig Silverman? That's him. Man, can I tell you a good story about Craig? I'd love it. Once Craig took his dog, Tuffy, to a singing competition. For what purpose? Well, the dog was going to be in a dog food commercial. And how did they do? Well, Tuffy did fine. That dog, he could sing. So did they get the job? No, they didn't. There was a problem. And what was that? Well, Tuffy only sang when Craig started singing. And when that happened, everybody around started laughing. You know, Craig's not a good singer. But Craig's a great talker. You know, he sure is. Now let's talk about how Sandler can help you. Great. My sales team really needs help. You've come to the right place. Sandler Training can help you big time if you are a salesman or a sales manager. If you would like to learn more about Tuffy or me or how to make sales, call my old friend Dan Levitt, 303-829-2107, 303-829-2107. Tell him Craig and Tuffy sent you. This is the Craig Silverman Show, and I'm Craig. Our democracy is at stake. It's never been more important to let your voice be heard. Join the conversation and fight for our democracy. It is our duty and our constitutional right. Follow the Craig Silverman Show on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at C. Silverman Show. Be a part of the change. Now, back to the Craig Silverman Show. Welcome to Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. Gosh, what a pleasure to welcome back to Craig's Lawyer's Lounge, Joe Salazar. Joe, longtime representative in the Colorado State House, esteemed lawyer in the Colorado Bar. Welcome back. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for welcoming me back. It's my pleasure. Tell everybody what you've been up to. Actually, before that, for those who may not have heard you before, give us a thumbnail on how long you've been in Colorado, where you went to school, and how you became a lawyer. Yeah, so my family goes back, predates the state of Colorado and predates the United States. We've been here Spanish side since the 1600s. And indigenous side, we've been here since our, our belief of creation of the world. So been here a long time, man. And yeah, despite the many generations that my family has been here, I'm the first of my family to go to, to, to college. I went to the University of Colorado at Boulder back in the late 80s and early 90s. And then uh, certainly the first to, to go to law school, graduated from uh, DU Law School in 2003 and been practicing as a civil rights attorney since. Beyond that, you are a political leader. Tell everybody about your politics and how you earned elective office. Yeah, so uh, I was a representative for House District 31 here in the Thornton area, and I was elected in 2012, and I served until I finished my term in 2019. You know, pretty pretty staunch, progressive, uh, Bernie progressive. I was actually Bernie Sanders' chief surrogate here in the state of Colorado in 2016, also in 2020. And that's that's how I was known at the state house was, you know, a fiery progressive Democrat. You know, I, I, I believe that progressivism means that we don't leave anybody behind. And that's how I operated. Uh, you know, I supported Republican bills just as much as I did Democrat bills and also attacked Republican bills just as I did Democrat bills, too. So, you know, I, I, I try to I try to share the love, Craig. <laughs> Joe, how have you stayed involved in politics? So now I was elected by the Colorado Democratic Party to be a DNC member. And so that's that's what I do right now is I'm a DNC member 
for the state of Colorado. But not only that, but, you know, I was born from community. So I, as, as soon as my run was over with, with the, the state legislature, I went right back to community and I serve as the executive director of Colorado Rising, which is an environmental protection nonprofit organization. And I sit on the board of Servicios de la Raza, which serves the Latino and indigenous communities here in the Denver metro area. Right. My old job. How's it going there? No, I'm just kidding. You are so <laughs> active. And this election season, did you take part? I'm sure you voted like all of us, but how did you participate? What did you make of the results? So, yeah, I participated. Boy, I did an awful lot from text message campaigns, phone calls, to recording video for various candidates. Voting, of course, you know, the most important thing, uh, taking on social media to remind people to vote and the importance of voting. So, yeah, I mean, I, I definitely also endorsed quite a bit, sat on a number of, of committees to get people elected. Yeah, I mean, that's primarily what I did now in terms of, of the vote itself. I mean, I, I'm thrilled to death that Donald J. Trump has been unelected and that we have a president-elect in uh, Joe Biden. And, you know, those results are solid. And to challenge those results, I think, is extremely undemocratic. And I, I just wish that Donald Trump would gracefully go away and, and begin that transition process. Right. And I hope that I get drafted by the Nuggets this year. It's not going to happen. <laughs> I right. mean, this Friday afternoon press conference in the Rose Garden, the guy has an opportunity. If he really wants to run in 2024 and not be a petulant baby, he would say, I called Joe Biden. We're going to work together on distributing this vaccine. I'm responsible for warp speed. And even though Pfizer said they didn't take our money, I'm going to call them liars. And I'm going to tell you there's going to be the greatest distribution of a vaccine ever. And you will miss me when I'm gone. But of course, he didn't say that. He didn't say that because he's immature. Have you ever seen anything like it, Joe Salazar? What do you make of Donald Trump? And especially, isn't it sedition for him to undermine the incoming administration the way he is by not cooperating in a transition? Yeah. So I to answer your first part of your question, I've never seen anything like this. I mean, I, I've 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 served with some some people who, you know, were rather unsavory characters, but nothing at this level and certainly nothing at the level of the president of the United States. I mean, my God, anybody I, I can't imagine anyone acting more of a man child than than this guy. I mean, and he constantly lying constantly lying and just hurting Americans left and right for his own purposes. I mean, selfish as, as, as who knows what, right? And he just, he's really utterly just disgusting as a human being. And people call him amoral and it's beyond that. He's immoral. You know, I, there is no way for him to, to, to gracefully exit. I mean, it's, I don't think he even knows what a graceful exit would look like. He's just so pathetic. And in terms of sedition, you and I have talked about this. I've asked about it on social media. At what point does holding up the transition actually become sedition? And, you know, that's, I think that's, that's, that's a question that we're going to have to start asking ourselves more and more as we near January 20th. Right. And the Supreme Court's going to have to resolve his ability to pardon himself. He's going to do that. He may step down and have Pence pardon him for a double assurance that he won't have to go to prison. I think he's a sociopath. I think he's grifted a lot of money. Should he go to jail, Joe Salazar? Yeah, I think he should go to jail. I think that that's the thing that's scaring him the most 
is that he has engaged in such criminal activity as president of the United States and prior to that that has to be weighing pretty heavily on him. I think that he is going to be found guilty of something and he will serve some time. He's just that much of a crook. Wow. And you and I are both Colorado lawyers. We're familiar with criminal concepts like complicity. What about all his enablers, the elected Republican officials? They're becoming fewer and farther between, but Lauren Boebert is the new face of the Republican Party, but they have that old face as well, Ken Buck. And both of those are backing Donald Trump's attack on uh, this election, the sanctity of the vote. I think it's shameful, don't you? I do think it. I, you know, Lauren, Lauren Boebert is just, she is, you know, it makes me really wonder what is happening out in CD3 that people elected an individual who got her water compact confused with the national popular vote that was mentioned by the Pueblo chieftain when they interviewed her, how she got very basic concepts mixed up, and, and yet she was elected. What is going on in our country? What, what, what are we not doing correctly to educate the public about uh, about our government and about the very basics of our government. Uh, I mean, I, I've been wondering that since election night. It's it's kind of scary, isn't it? I offer my microphone to Republicans with the courage to stand up and oppose Donald Trump. Victor Mitchell is a guest on this very show. Cole West has been a guest. You served, I expect, with Cole West, or you know him anyway. Bottom line is, which Republicans have really disappointed you because they have not come forward? I suppose all of them, really. Uh, Colorado Republican Party has been very quiet about Donald Trump. In fact, uh, some of them have championed what you know Donald Trump has 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 spewed, such as Ken Buck. I mean, he's. Uh, it's not so much that he's a disappointment. I mean, I, that's what we had to expect from Ken Buck, Corey Gardner. Of you know, I, I know Corey. You know, I didn't serve with Corey, but but I knew him during my time as a legislator, and you know, interacting with him. And I, I guess I am a little surprised that he didn't take a position of of a stronger position, or any position for that matter, of repudiating Donald Trump uh, altogether on so many things. Uh, so that that comes maybe as a little bit of a surprise. The Colorado Republican Party as a whole, I've always found them to be, you know, pretty pretty much a, um, a woeful group. So uh, that doesn't surprise me too much. Are they going to change now? I saw a big change in talk radio when Pat Neville was a regular guest with all my colleagues on Salem Media. I never saw a takeover of radio quite like the House Republicans attempted and really achieved. They got their hardcore, what I would consider radical right message out to the public. And Pat Neville, I'm sure you encountered him. What do you make of that fellow? Yeah, so I did serve with Pat. I served with him for, I believe it was four years. It seemed like much longer than that. You know, I would say that, you know, back in 2017, he took to the House floor and just spewed this racist nastiness on the House floor to where the Speaker of the House, then uh, Crisanta Duran, actually had to gavel him down and talk with him about the fact that he wasn't going to, you know, use racist language in the, the House well during his speeches. And he completely ignored her and just continued doing what he was doing. And that's the face of the Republican Party, right? That's That's exactly how they operate as they... They're a party of, and I'm sorry to say this, there are some exceptions like Cole Wist and Wayne Williams, but it's a party of hatred. It's a party of voter suppression. And Donald Trump gave them license 
to come right out into the open and be as hateful and spiteful as, as anybody could be. Do you take heart that Neville is now out of leadership? Oh, yeah, I take heart that he's out of leadership. But even the leadership that they do have, Hugh McKean, you know, I, I didn't see much. There was a, a photo of the new Republican leadership in the paper just the other day. They, they elected Hugh McKean, uh, their minority leader. And out of their entire caucus, the only person who was wearing a mask was the representative out of Colorado Springs, Terry Carver. And the rest of them apparently refused to wear masks. And what kind of dangerous message does that send to the state of Colorado when today alone we had over 6,000 confirmed COVID cases? And yesterday it was over 4,000, right? And this party utterly refuses to be responsible, to set a, a, a good example for the state of Colorado by doing the very simple thing of wearing a mask. So while I, I take heart in the fact that Pat Neville is no longer the minority leader, it doesn't seem like leadership really changed all that much. Boy, that pisses me off because these Republican obstructionists, even mask wearing, led by their great leader, Donald Trump, is the reason my son is having his senior year of high school at home. And I know you have school age kids. It's outrageous. I see a direct line and I'm so aggravated at these people who say there is no pandemic, masks don't help. Damn it. These people are really endangering the public. That's it's crazy. I we we have a friend who came over uh, the other day, and um, you know she came. She just stopped by. She was wearing a mask. We were wearing masks. She lost three family members last month alone to COVID. Three family members: her mom, her brother, and a sister. And I'm just I'm infuriated by this. I, I look at my girls. You know, one's 20, 24 and she's in college. The other one is 12 and in middle school. And, you know, they're here at home. Their mental health is being affected, just as I'm sure the mental health of other kids are being affected across the state and across the nation. In fact, across the world. And we have individuals who are so damn selfish, Craig, that they can't even put on a mask because they, they, they hide behind this illusory concept of liberty as though liberty stretches out to a mask, right? And, and, and instead, they, they, they rest on this, quote, rugged individualism, and they don't even recognize that this country was built off of a communal nature, that we helped each other, that we protected each other. And that's how we uplifted ourselves as a, as a country, right? And, and, of course, it wasn't fair across the board. Uh, you know, certainly, you know, black and brown and indigenous people were, were treated in a different way. But the main concepts are there, that we act communally with one another and that we're beholden to each other. But these individuals are there. Right. And, and they couldn't give a damn about our families. They couldn't give a damn about the rest of society because they, they sit there with their no necks and their and their little flag saying, you know, screaming liberty. And, and and the fact that they're hiding behind liberty to say that they shouldn't be wearing a mask. I mean, it's it's man, I'm telling you, it's at, at, the, at a, even a spiritual level. It is it is just ap just absolutely wrong at a, at a human level. I mean, I think it's just criminal. And we have that new Georgia House member, Republican, QAnon supporter, who today said, my body, my choice, the hell with mask mandates. And she's got the support of the president of the United States. It is so despicable. And Donald Trump has so screwed up this COVID. A normal person would, you know, run out of the White House with his tail between its legs. But this guy is far from normal. I think. He 
is going to burn down the house. I'm so worried about the next 10 weeks. What about you, Joe? Oh man, Craig, I, I just had this conversation. I was on a, I was on a different show on Monday. I think it was Monday or Tuesday on brother Jeff, the brother Jeff show. And I, I raised that as a, as a concern that I am really worried, man, that, you know, what does, what does it look like for this country to reach to January 20th? We just saw breaking news just a moment ago that Trump has iced out the director of the CIA from intelligence briefings. We know that he has fired Espy, who was the defense secretary earlier this week. He's doing topsy-turvy on, you know, very essential structural departments such as the nuclear commission as well as our national electric grid i mean what is this guy up to these are the acts of a dictator and he's trying to consolidate power somehow and i am really worried about this and i really do believe that sedition should be uh something that we start discussing uh as we move along the way right and the concepts of complicity and accessory they right. know what he's doing and nobody is stopping him. We need people to step up. Gosh, how many times has Cory Gardner had a chance to be an American hero? And he lost big. But if he held a press conference tonight and said, hey, Donald Trump, this stuff doesn't go. What are you doing with Gina Haspel? You can't be replacing this guy and that. I object. What is stopping Cory Gardner from saying that? I, I don't know. I, I don't know. I, I don't know at that higher level or we want to consider it to be a gutter dragging level. I don't know what they're up to, but they seem to be scheming. I mean, why? I've never known a president who has finished a term and is working in transition or who has lost an election and working through transition, firing some really key people before that transition is complete. It's usually the incoming president who makes those decisions. But, you know, he's, he's making decisions in a manner that is, you know, frankly, just uh, frightening. And, and I'm trying to figure out, and I'm sure everybody else is trying to figure out, what's this guy up to? Which then leads to the next part of it is, why isn't Cory Gardner saying anything about it, right? I mean, he's still the senator until, you know, his successor is sworn in. So what in the world is he doing about it? And, and, and the answer is nothing. So what do they have up their sleeve? What's the end game? And, you know, I'm, I'm really worried about it. I am too. And I'm trying to understand where various people are coming from, like religious Christians who back Donald Trump, but backed away from him a little. I think a key swing and allowed the blue wall to be resurrected is the Catholicism of Joe Biden. Hillary Clinton's, what was she, a Methodist? But Joe Biden feels it in his kishkas. You can tell that he's not contemptuous of religion. He's truly religious. And I think that made a difference in this election, don't you, Joe? I, I, I think it did. I think that uh, the, the more radical, uh, fanatical individuals are still on Trump's side, as we saw earlier this week with that one uh, evangelical pastor who, who, who did this really bizarre, very creepy laugh about uh, about the election. I don't know if you saw that. It was it was on Twitter. And I did. It was, it was, man, that it was, was creepy. Right. But if you think about it, he and Trump are in the same business, raising money from rubes for their own personal benefit. Yeah, 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 totally. And I, and I think that uh, with Joe Biden being in there, being, you know, someone who's a devout Catholic, I, I think that that I'm hoping that that changed a lot of people's mind during the election. I guess I guess, you know, we'll, we'll have to figure that one out. Our researchers will have to figure that one out as we move along the way. But I, I think you're right, though. I think it did. It did make a difference. Tell everybody how they can follow you on social media. 
Yeah. So, you know, I'm on Facebook, uh, you know, Joseph Salazar, pretty simple. And then I'm on Twitter as Colorado CEO Chicano Joe. And I'm also on Instagram, but you know, I don't know much about Instagram, so I'm not me I'm neither. not on it all too often. <laughs> yeah, I was hoping you could teach me, but I like that you are such a proud Chicano. A lot of us gringos, we don't know what term to use, Hispanic, Latino, Chicano, but you guys are growing in size. What about the Hispanic vote? How did it perform in 2020? Did it meet your expectations? It didn't. I mean, I, more people came out, definitely, and I'm I'm proud of the fact that people came out to vote, regardless of how they voted. I'm proud of the fact that they came out to vote because, you know, it's our constitutional right and people have fought and died for it. In terms of the Latino vote, I'm really distressed. More Latino men voted for Donald Trump in 2020 than what they did in 2016. And we're going to have to figure that one out. Same with black men. More black men voted for, for Donald Trump in 2020 than what they did in 2016. So, you know, there's there's some internal community issues that we're going to have to sort through. You know, who knows what line of crap our community members bought from the charlatan, right? We're going to have to sort through this, though, because we, we just can't have this again, where you have someone who is so hateful, so spiteful, just a con artist, you know, fooling members of our community. So I am, I am disappointed in that. On my indigenous side, I'm very proud of my indigenous community. As we know, 97% of the Navajo Nation registered voters voted for Joe Biden. And the same, we see high numbers in other indigenous nations all across the country that they voted at an extremely high rate for Joe Biden for president. So that, that does give me comfort. I'm generally proud of my tribe, but I have to say that the Jewish people of Florida and the Hispanic people of Florida really let us down, which is how exactly. Trump won. Must be a different breed of cat that decides to live in Florida. I don't know, but let's talk about a person who we have in common, the Latino community and the Jewish community. You know who I speak about. He's in the news and he's our go-between in the negotiations with Donald Trump. I <laughs> uh, no, who, who are you talking I about? I speak, man? there's a special name dropping episode of my podcast, but I happen to have a long and friendly relationship with Geraldo Rivera, who reported <laughs> on Friday that he has conversed with the president, that the president is a realist. He wants to exhaust all his options, but he suggested that he's probably going to deal with reality. So Geraldo Rivera is a perfect example of a Jewish and a Hispanic guy who stayed with Donald Trump. I don't understand it, and I haven't spoken to him for a while, but I'm going to get him back into Craig's Lawyer's Lounge and pepper him with questions. I know his wife is on our side, Erica. So you didn't you know serious? I was you going know? with Geraldo. <laughs> I did. I didn't even know that you knew Geraldo Rivera, man. That's that's kind of that's kind of cool. I didn't know that he was he was serving as that go between. Uh, I I couldn't figure him out for these past four years either. I, I I don't know why he trumpeted Trump the way that he did these past four well, years. Well, I can tell you why because they're okay. friends, and I never really watched The Apprentice, but I became friends with Geraldo through Jean Benet. He saw some of my quotes. He had me on Rivera Live, and I became a regular. He kind of made my national TV exposure grow exponentially. And then during the Kobe Bryant case, he was still a major cable star, and he kept having me on as I expressed my view. And it was right about then that he was getting married to Erica Levy at Central Synagogue in New York. 
Geraldo's been married five times before, and he's a famous playboy, but he finally met a nice Jewish girl, of course, Geraldo, a Puerto Rican, and a Jewish descent. So he invited my wife, Trish, and I out to the wedding, treated us just unbelievably well, and it was the time of our lives. We know the family. They have a little baby, Soul. Erica and Soul are totally for Biden, but Geraldo, he was on Celebrity Apprentice. He came in second to Lisa Gibbons. I watched every episode, kind of impressed by Trump, really impressed by my pal Geraldo. I've had him in Craig's Lawyer's Lounge, so what can I say? He is my buddy. Ben, all the power to you. I, I would I would love to know what caused him to support this man for the past four years. I mean, because, you know, friends, you know, really good friends will put you in your place. You know, they'll, they'll, they'll sit down with you and be like, man, you know, you're 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 being a real jerk in the, on, on this issue. And, and I would love to know if, if Geraldo ever sat down with Trump and say, hey, buddy, you know, you're kind of screwing up over here. You know, maybe you shouldn't be acting the way that you're acting. And, you know, maybe he did have those conversations. I don't know. But I found it really odd uh, how much he tried to excuse the behavior of this president. I agree. And Geraldo is a little gone because now he's supporting the two Georgia U.S. Senate candidates. He's well, apparently Purdue kind of a moderate who? Republican. Oh. I can't that David Perdue made that uh-huh. anti-Semitic Facebook ad against his opponent, Johnny Ossoff, and then he mangles Kamala's name when he's worked with her in the Senate. Isn't that enough evidence of bigotry? And why, Geraldo, would you support such a guy? I'm asking you, Joe Salazar, but I will someday ask Geraldo that. It's a, it's a really good question. I I don't understand it, how, how you know people of color, how the Jewish community and, and others, women, people in the LGBTQ community, how they could have ever gravitated around this guy. I mean, the moment he showed his, his, his true colors by supporting white nationalists and white supremacists, every single one of those groups should have been out. They should have told this guy, man, this is unacceptable and we're out. Regardless of if they think that they're making money off of Trump's, Trump's economic policies, the moment that you go into the gutter like that, that's when you should just piece out of, of, of that relationship with, uh, with that individual. And they didn't do it. And, and once again, as a, as a nation, we have some self-reflection to do. We have to have some very serious and hard conversations, conversations that we've needed to have for generations, but it's really come to a head. We need to have these conversations. I would love to know why Geraldo Rivera would have, would have, would have supported this guy. I promised to try to get him on. Are you talking about Charlottesville? Was that a big deal for you like it was for me? Yeah, Charlottesville, Charlottesville, or or the, or the fact that we had uh, we had these these kids going in and shooting up a black church or su- shooting up a Tree of Life synagogue. It's the synagogue, synagogue, right? Yeah, right. Pittsburgh. And 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 nothing from this man, right? Literally, well, he did go visit that synagogue, but but not enough, and especially with Charlottesville. And you know what? I've got to tell you that I should have reacted more strongly when he called out Judge Curiel as a Mexican, this Mm -hmm. Hispanic American from Indiana. That should have been enough racism for me right there. But everybody has their breaking point. I did not want to think that we would elect a president who's a racist, but we did. And now over 72 million people have voted for him. What do you do with that, Joe Salazar? That is, that's an excellent question. I mean, it wasn't as if, you know, a bunch of people left this guy saying, no, I'm not going to tolerate this. 
there were more people who voted from now in 2020 than what they did in 2016, apparently agreeing with who he is as a human being. And man, I, that's scary. That's scary that he espouses the hatred that he does, the bigotry that he does, that this country has become more violent towards communities of color, towards the Jewish community. And still more people came out and voted for this guy. I mean, I, I'm astounded about where we're at as, as, as a country, and I'm wondering where we're going. I know it. it's scary, but let's credit some group of people like you who got involved with your activism. I'm doing what I can, pounding out the truth against Donald Trump every week. But I think athletes deserve a hat tip because even though their ratings are down, I love the NBA season. The Nuggets really competed, and LeBron is really a cultural icon. And their one message, Joe Salazar, was vote. And we all know who they wanted us to vote for, but they got a lot of people out to vote, and that was the difference. So let's be happy. Thank God Donald Trump is defeated. What happens next, Joe? Give us some optimism. Yeah, so I, I think I think that we do start rallying around this president, we start rallying around the goodness of the policies that he's, he's talked about. I think that that makes us a better country. I think that now that we have science back in the hands of our president-elect, you know, science will actually be cool again instead of something to demonize. So I'm, I'm pretty excited about that, too. It's going to take us a while to get through this. But you know what? Our, our country has been through so much, so many obstacles that, you know, we're tough. We're tough people. And we're going to be able to get through all of this. Uh, you know, one of the other sports groups or uh, sports franchises that I think that, you know, we should give a shout out to is the WNBA. Wow, were they fierce? They were so fierce. I loved how fierce the WNBA was in terms of getting out the vote and talking about social issues. You know, there, there, there's, a, there's a guy here, you know him quite well, George Brockler, who really got upset with the fact that these sports teams were talking politics. And he got hammered, right? He's like, the politics has nothing to do with sports. And then people, of course, you know, showed the fist raise in the Olympics and, and multiple other examples of how, you know, our, our athletes uh, demonstrate their patriotism through their sport. Muhammad Ali is another example, right? And he really got hammered. And I thought to myself, this, this guy can't really be that dense. I mean, of, of, of course, athletes throughout the ages have expressed their political views, you know, by doing their sports. But but literally, I mean, he was just trying to demonize the hell out of everybody for doing that. And I was I was quite shocked by it. But I get George's point a bit because people go to sports events to escape. I had Spencer Haywood on. He led the United States basketball team to victory at that 68 Mexico City Olympics. So I agree with you, although if you examine my record, I thought when people took a knee before the anthem, it was a distraction from a team effort in a way. Now I look at it differently. You know, you have to have an open mind about these things. And I just admire athletes. And, you know, we're recording uh, deep into the Jewish Sabbath. And I have to thank God for my prayers that Joe Biden would rise to the occasion. And he really did for an older guy who a lot of people thought might not hold up. He's been doing and saying the right thing. And Ron Klain, you talk about a member of my tribe that gives us pride, a lawyer who's got great morality and expertise at dealing in pandemics. 
I'm thrilled that he's chief of staff. Do you know Ron Klain? Are you happy? I, I, I don't know him, but I know his reputation, and I'm really happy that Joe Biden selected him as, as chief of staff. I think that under his leadership, he's going to be able to get all sorts of things in order. And I'm excited to see where Joe Biden's going to go. And you're right. He has said the right things. He has made the right moves. And he has been so incredibly patient. And calm. And calm. Right. He's calm and he's got Kamala right next to him. And Kamala, who's called Mamala by her children, she married a Jewish guy. And she loves being called Mamala, which is a Yiddish term of affection. And that's where my optimism comes from, Joe Salazar. And I hear it in your voice, too. We both have kids, college kid and a high school kid, or you've got a middle school kid. But my hope is in the next generation, because I don't think they're as messed up as we are. And they just don't go for this bigotry thing, right, against LBGTQ or people of different races. They are better than us. And the arc of justice bends in their direction, don't you think? Oh, I absolutely agree with you. You know, I take a look at my girls and and just just how much they embrace the world around them and embrace, uh, you know, people who are different from them, passing no judgment, just loving them for being human beings. I see that in a lot of the youth that, uh, you know, I'm called to to support through the environmental movement. And and the fact that they they just look at each other as human beings and they, they they love each other for that for that one purpose right and I believe that our greatest generation is yet to come and I see it in them. Joe Salazar, I loved our conversation. I can't wait till you come back. Thank you for your time. Deep into a Friday night. Right on, partner. Thank you very much. And how do you how do you say it? I want to make sure that I say it correctly. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. And you know what Shalom means? It means hello, goodbye, and peace. That's the most beautiful thing. Let there be peace and let us survive this next 10 weeks and have a smooth transition of government. Thanks, Joe Salazar. See you around, Thank you very much, sir. All righty. We'll talk to you. All right. Bye. Follow The Craig Silverman Show on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at C. Silverman Show. And subscribe to The Craig Silverman Show podcast on Spotify, Apple, Stitcher. Don't quit on democracy. Be a part of this historic moment. Connect with us on social media at C. Silverman Show. In my practice of law, Michael Bailey, decisions are often left to a personal representative. God forbid a person gets killed. That's an important decision you can make ahead of time. Who is going to be your personal representative? What is your advice in that regard? So you want to pick somebody as a personal representative who has several qualities. Number one, you want them to kind of have a good sense of financial stuff and and matters like that so they can they can deal with that. You know, I have a friend who's really, really good and really, really smart and is scared to death to fill out a tax form because they don't quite, just the finances don't make sense to them. So you don't want to pick that type of person. You want to pick somebody who can understand finances. You want to pick somebody who's trustworthy, who will carry out your decisions. And if you can do it, you want to pick somebody who's not afraid of people not liking them or getting their feelings hurt. Now back to the Craig Silverman Show. Victor Mitchell. Hey, Craig. Do you realize this is my 20th podcast and you were on my very first show on the 4th of July? 
Well, that's fantastic. That's terrific. Congratulations. You made 20 and uh, hopefully you'll make 200 and eventually 20,000. Tell my audience what's going on in Victor Mitchell's world. My world is not that interesting. I'm working very hard in my company and trying to stay relevant in the political world and been very active in trying to start a nonprofit free health clinic down in the Pueblo area. You do gooder. What about your health and that of your family? How is the Mitchell family weathering the pandemic? We're all doing well, but unfortunately, there's a couple people in my company that have caught COVID. And it's a little bit frightening for us, for a business owner and here in Colorado to have a you know, relatively small company with 10 employees and have two of your employees sick. So like everything, we're trying to stay safe and we're adhering to most of the guidelines and trying to wear a mask. But like, in, like most people, we're, it's unsettling. You almost were governor of Colorado. You came in second in the GOP primary to Walker Stapleton. I took notice of you because you had the courage to say, I cannot support Donald Trump, but I still want your Republican nomination. And you came pretty darn close. Do you ever think about what would have happened if you were governor right now and all the responsibilities that have fallen on Jared Polis? Would you have liked that kind of job? Uh, of course. I mean, absolutely. It's my skill set. I've spent my whole career dealing crisis management, dealing with very complex problems and I think I certainly could have done much better than our current governor, but I think the governor is doing his best. He's trying hard and he's, you know, he's, he's really putting his best foot forward. It's an extraordinarily difficult situation, but of course, I mean, I think about that, but I try not to live in the past. I try to think about the moment and think about the future and all the good things are ahead. Think bigger. How about if you were president, do you think you could have done a better job than Donald Trump? (laughs) I think uh, Mickey Mouse could have done a better job than Donald Trump. Isn't it something? Have you ever seen a worse managerial failure? It was a whole bunch of press conferences, spending money. You way overdid the ventilators. But in the end, it was a total surrender. And now we're all living in a complete crisis. It's it's a great tragedy. It's a really a tragedy of biblical proportions. I mean, it's it's extraordinary. I mean, the man was the man's a fraud. He's always been a fraud and he's a ter- he's a terribly incompetent leader and administrator and he's clearly never really run anything that's, you know, complex, a difficult situation. He's not a collaborator. And worst of all, he's a conspiracy theorist. So we have the you know, it's a cocktail of the very worst attributes as a human being combined with somebody without any true skill sets. And it's it's really a biblical proportions. This this COVID epidemic shouldn't have been even a fraction of what it is today. But I'm hopeful about the vaccinations and therapies. And it seems that they have a terrific team in the Operation Warp Speed. And I think they're going to do a much better job on disseminating the vaccinations versus how we've dealt with mitigating the the virus to date. You are such a busy dude. I don't know if you caught the president in a Rose Garden address on Friday afternoon, but He has a great opportunity, especially if he wants to contemplate running again in 2024. It appears that Operation Warp Speed is going okay. Pfizer really didn't take the money except for the distribution. You know that. But the vaccine is coming along great, and it could be a huge success. He could conceivably, if he was dedicated to the American people, do a great job getting the vaccine out there and make good use of this 10 weeks to the point where 
we might say, hey, you know what? He did pretty good on that vaccine, but the guy just doesn't have it in him to even cooperate with the incoming administration. Isn't that outrageous? Absolutely. I mean, it's tragic. It's worse than outrageous. I mean, it's frustrating. It's disappointing. It's un-American. I mean, we just have a country of this kind of wealth and intellectual capacity and to elect somebody who really has no skills and who's basically a dishonest person and is a terribly incompetent leader. And you, it's really, it's extraordinary. And I have to say, you know, when he was elected, I said to, I, I believe I might have even said it to you, that all of his cabinet were going to be straw men. They were not going to be serious. They were going to be figureheads. And the family was going to be run like the mob with his family having all the power. And, and unfortunately, it's played out that way. But Joe Biden, you know, we wish him Godspeed. And I think he's hopefully going to be the right man for the moment. He's definitely has decency about him. And we need to all get behind him and give him a chance. The most frightening thing is 72 million people voted for Donald Trump. And even now, even after he's been soundly defeated, 306 electoral votes, way more than 5 million in the popular vote, the Republican Party is still held hostage by the man. You are a longtime Republican. You achieved an elective office. How do you account for this, Victor Mitchell? <laughs> it's not exactly a profile in courage, is it, Craig? I mean, it's what can you say? I mean, we've we've gotten to the bottom of the barrel with our elected officials, but you should actually take a look closely at the polls in Colorado. And Trump got lost Colorado in 2016 by just five percentage points. This time around, I believe it's around 13 percent. So the, he, he got slaughtered in Colorado. So for whatever reason, Coloradans seem to get his, you know, have, have got his number versus other Republicans around the country. But don't make any mistake about it. I mean, the Democrats didn't help themselves. Kamala Harris is a pretty extreme candidate. And you had AOC and the whole socialism and defund the police. And those are good taglines for, you know, lower informed voters that are not paying attention to this day and night. And they hear socialism and they hear defund the police and they say, you know, maybe he's not so bad after all. And and I like my low taxes and I like my conservative judges. And that's basically the way it played out, unfortunately. To me, I think that people should be voting on character. I think I think in, in an ideal world, you should have a Republican and a Democrat candidate of equal character. And it comes down to policy. But in this case, you had a diametrically opposite people, one person with bad character, and one person with good character. But don't you have to reexamine your premises? I agree that people of bad character can emerge in any party, but we've never seen a guy with this bad of a character who is not jettisoned by his political party, which causes me to question the character of the Republican Party. I was never part of it, but I had a lot of friends who were like you. And I don't know Stuart Stevens, but he's written a book that it was all a big lie. And maybe... Republican Party is based on this white nationalism and some bigoted stuff that I just don't have time for. I can't stand it. Absolutely. It should have been snuffed out. There should be a zero tolerance on that type of ignorance, but it hasn't been. And what bothers me equally as much as the rise and the legitimacy of white supremacists in the, within the Republican Party is the you know total abdication of their core principles. I mean, what happened to 
debts and deficits and balanced budgets? What happened to free and open trade? I mean, what happened to many of the issues that we cared about and we fought for for decades? What about a strong national defense? Uh, what about being the leader of the free world and promoting democratic values and liberal demo- democratic principles? I mean, we've we've abdicated on everything in the Republican Party. I mean, it's really it's really a shame, and it's um, I'm hopeful that once Donald Trump is gone. Uh, that the party can reform itself. But, you know, there should be some degree of skepticism for that to happen. That hasn't happened so far. As I wrote in the Colorado Sun, Cory Gardner got in bed with Donald Trump and it was a reverse Stormy Daniels. He had to pay a big price, right? So what do you make of Cory Gardner getting slaughtered by Hickenlooper? Just desserts? Absolutely. I mean, he had an opportunity when Trump was indicted and impeached he could have easily have voted for conviction. The evidence was incontrovertible and overwhelming. And he disregarded all the evidence. He wasn't a fair arbiter. He didn't even want to vote for witnesses. And I think Coloradans said no to that. I mean, that, that's really, the, that, that's one of the Greek tragedies to this whole mess. I mean, if the Republican Party would have removed Trump, impeached him, convicted him, then we would have a different conversation today. We would have had a legitimate President Pence and the Republican Party couldn't gotten back to conservative values. It was a real lost opportunity. What stops Cory Gardner from this weekend standing up and saying, hey, Donald Trump lost the election. It was fair and square best I can tell. It's time for him to provide for an orderly transition of government. And so say I, and I'm a United States senator, wouldn't that be impactful? How many opportunities does Cory Gardner have to be an American hero? And he never takes it. Never takes it like most of the other Republicans didn't take it either. I mean, they fear terror. They're weak and they're fearful and they're about their own self-interest to stay in power. And Coloradans woke up to that fact and and defeated him soundly and sent Cory Gardner packing. And it's really too bad because he could have won re-election had he had in my opinion, if he had voted for conviction, I think he probably would have won. He was a much stronger candidate than Hickenlooper. And uh, there was a lot of good, there's a lot of good things that Corey could have run on, but he basically didn't have any sense of independence. No, I, but I have to disagree with you because the Trump base would not vote for Gardner if Trump turned on him. And that's what they're afraid of in Georgia, right? Isn't that why the Republicans won't step up and say anything against Trump? They're afraid he'll take his ball and go home, they'll lose Georgia, and the Democrats will have the Senate. How do you dope out this race in Georgia? I, I really don't know. I mean, it's, I'm not a pundit, but, you know, most likely the, the two seats will get split and the Republicans will hold on to at least one, if not both of them. But you, you really don't know. I mean, it's, we're in uncharted waters, to say the least. And one, one hand, you know, on one hand, I, I, I much rather, I, lo- I love the idea of divided government. And I love the idea that if uh, there's a ch- there would be a check on tax policies, most especially coming out of a pandemic. But at the same token, I think there should be a price to be paid for all these uh, sycophants that that have, you know, supported unconditionally supported Trump and have no backbone and and have shown that they have little or no principles. I'm just never going to vote for a bigot again. I can't tell you how ashamed I am that I voted for Donald Trump and I didn't say he was a racist then, but there were 
good giveaways. I probably should have perceived it. And this guy, David Perdue, when he authorizes a Facebook anti-Semitic posting of John Ossoff, exaggerating the size of his opponent's nose, and then butchers the name of Kamala Harris, even though he worked with her for years, I make him to be a bigot, that and his support of Donald Trump. So I like to buy the government for the stock market too, but I can't support David Perdue. That's the way I feel about it, Victor. I understand, and I I understand where you're coming from, and many people feel the same way as you do. Right, but you're more conservative. You must be proud of Lauren Boebert, right? (laughs) Yeah, not quite. (laughs) No, I mean... Not not a big fan of hers either, unfortunately. What don't you like about her? The fact that she's a rabid Trumpist? I understand. and uh, But she's got an IQ of, uh, I shouldn't say, it wouldn't be very becoming. She's, she's maybe a bit lacking. Hey, she's got a GED. And so what if she failed to go to court? She's qualified to opine about how to make laws and tell everybody else what they should do. And... and and she's good at violating that public health order. Vic, I have to tell you that I've heard many broadcasters, many politicians on the right, on Denver Trump radio, saying this pandemic will go away as soon as the election is over. Another one of their conspiracy theories. And wow, were they wrong? That, that is so serious. And so many people unnecessarily had to die and get sick. I mean, it, that is really horrible. I mean, it's the it's the bu- most irresponsible, reckless thing Trump and his enablers have done is to deny and take serious, uh, deny the COVID outbreak and take serious measures to mitigate it and make it a making a unifying event to really get people to come together on this. And the sad thing is the the COVID outbreak is hurting our economy far worse than even the medical consequences, the the deaths and the sickness, because it's going to be very, very difficult for the economy to recover, even when we're in a post-COVID world. I mean, the damage is going to be long-lasting, unfortunately. And that's really on Donald Trump and his enablers that just couldn't even come together on some basic mitigation and taking it seriously and being honest about how serious and deadly the virus is. That's probably the most upsetting thing of all during his presidency. And there's been so many things he's done. but You know, we got to really be fair as well. I mean, there's been some good conservative appointment of judges. I think his tax policies have been good. He's been he's gotten rid of a good amount of regulations, but it's just too it was too high of a price to pay for somebody of his character. This pandemic lack of response really has consequences on mental health. I know that's your pet project. People are hurting. I'm grateful that my boys are old enough that they're self-sufficient, but to have a middle schooler or an elementary school kid, that's just tragic right now. It's going to scar a generation. What's going to be the outgrowth of this mental health-wise, Victor? There's a lot of problems. I mean, there's only going to be a lot of challenges. The good news is that we generally have a good understanding of how many kids are suffering. I have a 17-year-old at home right now. She's quarantining as we speak because her school just got shut down. My wife, Amy, as you might know, you know, she's a she's a director on Mental Health Colorado, and she's very passionate about providing services for behavioral health services. 
But, you know, we're again in somewhat uncharted waters, but we have a lot of highly qualified professionals that hopefully will make themselves available to try to treat these kids, adolescent kids especially. But this is one of the byproducts of the whole you know, mismanagement of the outbreak. I mean, there's so many tentacles to what's gone on. It's, uh, it's economic, it's behavioral health, it's physical, it's mental. It just is unbelievable. And you know, how is the, thinking about a little bit about this, about this, the seriousness of COVID is I think about it more globally. I mean, is this going to trigger things like sovereign debt failures? And are we going to have the type of leadership that's going to be needed to harness in a, a Marshall plan or something of that like? Because these kinds of things are, I mean, the, the nations around the world, the developed nations are terribly in debt and they're in big trouble. And it's, it's masking with the COVID. But once we come out of the COVID, you're going to see a lot of systematic failures throughout the global system of a free enterprise. Boy, that's not good for my mental health. I'm worried about surviving the next nine and a half weeks till January 20th. I'm worried that Donald Trump is mentally ill and he's going to try to burn down the house. Literally, he could do some wacky, terrible things. Am I wrong to fear that? Victor, what's your sense? You're not wrong at all. It's a completely reasonable assumption. And there's a reasonable probability that he will try to burn down the house. There are safeguards in place, but it's not foolproof. It's helpful that so many world leaders are recognizing Joe Biden. And it's helpful that he's not getting anywhere with these frivolous lawsuits. By the way, too, I want to make a point about these frivolous lawsuits that Trump is filing. What This really proves the point why we need to have in our in our system in our system today that prevailing party pays attorney's fees and there should be significant sanctions for attorneys and plaintiffs that come forward with frivolous lawsuits it's already there if you can show that it's frivolous and groundless you are entitled to attorney's fees in colorado and almost every state of the union but these are federal lawsuits right I'm confident it exists there. That's why these lawyers were walking on shaky ground and a lot of them backed out because there are ethical responsibilities. But yeah, if it's as frivolous as Trump's cases, award attorney fees. Absolutely. I mean, it's really just a <laughs> his president among all his his issues, among all his shortcomings. I mean, his emphasis towards filing frivolous nonstop litigation and most of it being frivolous to shake down people to fight people all every step of the way i mean it's really his day of reckoning is going to come i still have always thought that after he leaves office he's going to face criminal and civil liability like he's never seen before and i think that day is coming i mean it's just a matter of months at this point but we'll have to see how it plays out over the next year or two Right now, you're absolutely right. We should be focused on the next nine weeks until he's out of office. But have faith. I mean, the U.S. has been through terrible times over its history. This is a unique situation, but uh, we have still we have many things in our favor. And you have to have some faith that we'll get through this together and there'll be brighter, better days ahead. Well, I like that optimism, but I want you to make an executive decision. Let's put you as the guy in charge, in charge of everything to control America as we move forward. And Donald Trump says to you, here's the deal. Give me a pardon. Let me or you or Pence, whoever, a pardon that will stick, not just for the SDNY, but for New York City's got to be in on this, New York State. I want a global dismissal. And in exchange, 
I will not screw up the nation for the next nine weeks. I'll walk away right now. Would you make that deal or would you say no way? I would make that deal. You would make that deal. I would. Would you say you have to get off Twitter after this and you can't run for office again? Absolutely. I mean, as he would, it would be a global deal. You'd never make a, and he would have to acknowledge his guilt, even though that he wouldn't pay a, he wouldn't face a prisoner well, term a, or any kind of civil life. That's a deal breaker. But I do think he's engaging in a form of uh, that kind of hostage taking plea negotiation. And maybe it would be wise to give into it. I don't know what's going to happen. No, I haven't heard this. sounds a little bit conspiratorial to me, Craig. I mean, I'm not sure if no, he's really engaged I, in just, that, but we, we'll see how it plays out. There's no question. He's a dangerous, unstable person. And more and more people are getting it. But it is disappointing that so many people chose to support him for a variety of reasons. And there many of them, most of them are good people. So maybe, you know, we have to be a little bit more understanding. I, I was hoping that it would, he would have lost by 10 million or more votes, but he still lost. He lost in a resounding way. And the country is correcting itself. So we have to have a little bit of faith that whatever he pulls in the next nine weeks, uh, we'll be able to get through it. All I'm saying is nothing focuses the mind quite like the prospect of going to prison. And that is dominating the Donald's thinking. And he's trying to find a way out of it. And eventually, if he was smart, he might be nicer and more respectful to Joe Biden. But apparently, he's incapable of that. Now it looks like he's going to start his own media entity. And, you know, he told everybody, stop watching Fox News. And a lot of them have. They're going to Newsmax, where my adversary, Michelle Malkin, is one of the hosts, a mother of the alt-right and the Groypers and the Proud Boys. I mean, how low can this guy go? And what do you make of Donald Trump media? I don't really I haven't thought about it. I don't have an opinion on one way or the other. All I know, he's going to be he's becoming a smaller and smaller human being. And no matter what he's, whatever career path he decides to go in after he leaves office, he's facing fairly substantial civil and potentially criminal liability. And we'll have to see how that plays out. And that might trump everything. If he says, I'm running in 2024, and if anybody starts prosecuting me, it's only because they fear me. And do you think any Republican of any prominence will step up and say, well, nice to know you're running in 2024, but so am I. Can you see a Nikki Haley or a Ted Cruz doing that? I think that those people, as we saw, all your listeners have to go back and play video clips of 2016 with Ted Cruz and Nikki Haley and Marco Rubio and Lindsey Graham and, and Cory Gardner and all of them said about Donald Trump back in 2016 and what they say today. I mean, you wouldn't even know they're the same people. So the answer is, is that they, these are individuals that love their power. They'll do anything for their power. And if they think that there's a political opportunity, they'll pursue it. And if they fear Donald Trump, they won't. At this moment in time, it's, too, it's just impossible to predict. There's too many variables ahead to predict and even speculate about. It. So it's a bit irresponsible to even talk about it. Right now, we got to stay in the moment. Hopefully the country can pull itself together, deal with this COVID outbreak yet it's somewhat mitigated to a point where we don't have to reshut the whole economy down again, get Trump out of office, and give the new president a chance to try to right the ship. Right. I think all this future speculation about Trump is, is unhelpful. 
Well, he's not going away. And in reality, Lauren Boebert has more power. She will hold public office. He won't anymore. But the reason he has power is 72 million Americans voted for him. How scary is that, Big Mitchell? It's disappointing, but it's a a binary choice, Craig. So it's a big number, 72 million. But his opponent got 77 million. And uh, that's the it's a winner take all system. So, you know, that is a big number, 72 million. And I've talked to dozens of my friends who voted for him, and I don't think any less of them as people. I like them. I enjoy their company. I think they still enjoy spending time with me as well. And the primary reason is they talk about the economy. And I mean, we we really need more of a a movement towards a national unity. Uh, maybe it's a volunteerism, bringing bringing the co- country together with uh, public you know public commitment to volunteerism to bridge some of these divides. But, you know, most people generally voted for Trump for economic reasons. And who am I to criticize them for that? I mean, it's it's disappointing. I didn't see it that way. But as we talked about earlier, character to me means a great deal. People were willing to look past his poor character because they believe they would do better economically. And that's the fundamental reason why he got so many votes, given it's a two, you know, basically it's a binary choice. It wasn't unexpected that he got that volume of votes. He got slaughtered here. Trump is toxic in Colorado. What about you, Vic Mitchell? A comeback, run for governor again? How do you scope out that race? It's going to be talked about very quickly. Who's going to be the GOP nominee to take on Polis? I just haven't thought about it at all. I mean, I'm trying to figure out uh, how I can contribute to make Colorado a better place and find my role where I can make a difference. Maybe it's in elected office. Most likely it's not. So I haven't given it any consideration at all about, you know, what the race is going to be two years from now. Right now, I'm focused on, you know, keeping my company going, doing my volunteer work and being faithful to my family. That's what's on my mind right now. It's not about running for office. But, you know, we'll look at the politics, have short memories, and we'll see what happens over the next year or two on how things shake out. But I'm very excited. A close friend of mine is considering running for Colorado Republican State Party chair. I can tell you he's if he gets elected, he's a moderate. He is somebody that knows how to win races. And, who? Who? Uh, I, don't, I, I don't think I want to reveal it right who? now, who? but who? he's who? a person who? you would think very highly of. And a person who's been a friend of mine for a better part of 20 years and somebody of impeccable integrity and character. And when he decides he's going to make the move, I will be with him shoulder to shoulder and helping him get elected. But he's the kind of person that he he's cares about winning races. And that means recruiting the right type of candidates and not having, you know, this kind of allegiance to Trump, because you can't you can't be have an allegiance to Trump and win statewide in Colorado. We found that out the hard way in 2018 with my race when Walker Stapleton was just a horrific candidate, got through the primary and then took down the entire state party. <laughs> we lost every single race. We've never, I'm not sure if in the last 100 years, Colorado Republican Party has been in a worse predicament as we are today. So we've got to, we've got to do a soul reckoning here in Colorado and say, can we start winning races with center-right candidates that are suitable to the electorate or independent thinkers that are, have a great personal inspirational stories and have a proven track record? And if we can get to that, make that transition to those types of candidates for a variety of different positions, we'll have a chance of rebuilding the party in Colorado. Otherwise, we're just going to be in the wilderness and we're just going to be an opposition party. We're never going to win office. 
So it's not very fun having all the Republicans out in the wilderness. And you ask any of them that are in elected office today, I think they would agree. It's fun talking to you, Victor Mitchell. I thank you. You were part of my first show. 20th episode is a big one. And I'm thrilled that you can make it. Thanks for your contributions and keep up your great work. Well, thank you, Craig. Thanks for all the good work you're doing and congratulations on your success. And let's keep it going. I hope to see you on national talk radio someday. You definitely have the chops. Thank you, Vic. All the best to you. Same here. Hey, will you just do this for me? Go to my website at CraigSilvermanShow.com. Scroll down and look at that picture of my pal, Dan Levitt. He's a professional sales trainer and coach with Sandler Training. Now, Sandler has been doing this for many decades with great success. If you are in the sales business, then you need some training. Maybe you have already had it. God bless you. But if you feel like you are falling short, that you could learn some skills that could increase your income, Sandler knows what to do, and my friend Dan Levitt knows as well. Look at his face on my website and tell me if that little smile on his face does not make you want to smile back. I do, and I don't smile all the time. But Dan Levitt is fun to talk to, and he will give you a great deal if you say, Craig sent me. Call Dan Levitt. First look at his picture, smile back. 303-829-2107. For the best possible deal, tell Dan Craig sent me. Thank you. Gosh, it's hot in here. Did that toaster catch on fire? It wasn't that. You choked on that bite of burnt bagel. Why is everything all red? The heat is unbearable. Where am I? Excuse me, your dishonor. May I step in on behalf of my client? Mr. Silverman, proceed. Tell me one redeeming good thing your client did. He was a faithful listener to my radio show. Not good enough. He had decency and compassion for his family. He did end-of-life planning with Michael Bailey. The Michael Bailey? That is kind to your loved ones. That is smart and way too decent for this place. Your client can go. And what about me, your despicableness? Why should I? Michael Bailey is my lawyer, too. Go on, then. Get out of here. (laughs) Now, part of that was serious, and part of that was fictional. But you will die someday, and if you don't make a legal plan, the government will make one for you. Call my lawyer, Michael Bailey. His rates are reasonable, and he can meet with you and your spouse wherever you want, and on weekends and evenings. 720-394-6887 or online at MBL LLC.com. Now back to the Craig Silverman Show. This was a special episode for me. I hope you enjoyed it. I feel a little like Forrest Gump, the people I've met in my life. Geraldo Rivera, now a go-between between Donald Trump and reality. Geraldo is great to me. I still consider him a friend, but it's tough when people back Donald Trump despite all the things he represents right now including a threat to democracy and a threat to my family, and don't get me started. Joe Salazar is a very entertaining voice and a valuable member of our legal community. I hope you enjoyed that interview. Thank you, Joe Salazar, and my buddy, Victor Mitchell. If the Republican Party can come back in Colorado, 
They need to turn to guys like Victor Mitchell. But I'm not sure that will happen anytime soon. I will turn every week to my troubadour, Dave Gunders. Just love that song, This American Dream. I hope you love the show. And I hope you'll be back next week for more. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Tune in live every Saturday morning, 9 to noon, Mountain Time. Visit thecraigsilvermanshow.com for the podcast, blog, and more. Be sure to subscribe on all major podcasting platforms to be updated when new episodes are available. This has been The Craig Silverman Show.